Hello. Welcome to Lamniforms Radio, a podcast where I interview musicians and artists about their latest projects. My name is Ian Corey, and I am the songwriter in the band Lamniforms. I love learning about an artist's process, their intentions, and who they are as people. Today I am joined by Davey Hines, better known as Davey Friday. Davey is a designer, fine artist, and studying architect. His work draws from a wide range of sources, his academic background in biology and architecture, his upbringing in Chicago, and his experience working as a DIY fashion designer. Davey and I first became friends while working together in Chicago, and he quickly became one of my favorite intellectual sparring partners. I was delighted to have him on to discuss his artistic evolution and how his more recent work intersects with his political consciousness. Thank you for listening. How have you been? I, I have, like, what have you been up to? I feel like it's been a really long time since we've had a yeah. When did you move to New York? Like 2018, 2017. Summer of 2017, yeah. Yeah, so shit, I started architecture school in 2018, the same time I quit the winery. Just been painting and drawing, man, same stuff, but, you know, through the lens of architecture now, you know, it, it just, it like, it felt like it kicked the work in a hyperdrive, you know what I mean? Like, I not only mm-hmm. have developed a skill set from architecture, but a, a way of pattern thinking in architecture, you know what I'm saying? So... Yeah, man, just but still walking the same path, I guess. I just I just added buildings to the uh to the bag of tricks. Right. Yeah. I mean, I remember when we first met, you were studying biology. Right. And on a sort of surface level, biology and architecture might not seem to have a lot to do with each other. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it, like abstractly, the they're both thing. like structure. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. That's one thing I was worried about too. I'm like, man, it's it's the same thing. And I'm also getting I'm getting two degrees at IIT right now. So the first degree is a master of architecture, but the second degree is a master of landscape architecture. So I'm taking ecology classes just like I did when I was a biologist. And the same with biology and architecture. It's about recognizing patterns and figuring out some type of solution to a problem that may arise or some way to influence something you want to tweak you know what i mean and it just depends on how you, you can go all the way down to the cellular level or as macro as a building you know what i mean so why the the dual major approach what what inspired that because i needed i needed like i mean like i spent four years studying biology so i felt like i needed something to connect me to the sciences but also the way architecture is traditionally practiced you know as of like the past call it a hundred years i it's just uninteresting to me like i have no desire to work in an office i want to work for architecture studio and landscape architecture is a bit more like the culture is a bit more earthy you know what i mean it's a bit more like esoteric people just care more as opposed to you know because architecture can get very commercial and very capitalistic you know what i mean it is the vehicle by which America has made its money and you know how insidious that shit can get. So I'm trying to like, the landscape side of it keeps me well-rounded and keeps me not focused on just trying to get some money out of this this field. Right, right. So what inspired the the decision to go into architecture to begin with? Like how did, how did your attention get drawn to that? So I actually got an IIT for my master's of biology 
So I was just going to keep going on that track. But my mom, randomly, we were sitting in the house one day, and she was like, when you was in first grade, you really wanted to be an architect. And I really did. I thought back to it. I'm like, damn, like, where'd that dream go? And I, I was going back to school because I was just dissatisfied with my life at the time. But I knew I didn't really want to go back for biology. I was just doing it because I knew I'd be able to get a job, you know, after it. But so and IIT just happens to have the best architecture program in the Midwest. So I just applied on a whim. Like, I applied two months before the semester started and got accepted. And I just said, shit, fuck it. <laughs> just real random, like, just a random moment of life. Well, congratulations on making it to such a prestigious, you know, position. That's fucking rad. How, are you close to, to wrapping up that, yeah, that so I course? Got, or are you almost, almost done? done? I got two years left. So the first two years was a master's okay. of architecture. Now these next two years focus on my landscape architecture studio. So... I'll be done in two years. And so do you remember as a kid why architecture interested you? I don't remember. I just remember this one very distinct drawing where I had drew me and my friends on a construction site because I thought architects were like on the site drawing as the building was going on. <laughs> so like my friends were the construction yeah. guys and I was the architect. You know, I just, I don't know, I, I have no clue why I wanted to be an architect back then. I, I really don't know. I just remember that one drawing for real. And I guess my mom did too, or she right. probably just remembered more so why I was enthused. And so have you always drawn from a young age? Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably the the first thing I took to, you know what I mean? Like, you know, kids go through so many phases of things. Well, yeah, I probably, I've been drawing as early as I can remember. I probably got memories of drawing from like, as early as four, you know what I mean? And my mm -hmm. mom put me in a, a class at the Art Institute. I only went to like two sessions, but them two sessions was like really impactful when I was six. And then after that, I was just drawing on my own. Like I just stayed with notebooks and was just always drawing. And when did you, cause I know that you sort of went through a few different phases before you got to the, uh, the interest in kind of what's considered quote unquote fine art. Right. And we can tear apart that idea if we <laughs> want to at some point. point. Right. But I know that you, started off in doing like basically like like clothing design and fashion design uh did that also come out of the same interest in in drawing yeah really um yeah so i started like picking up with adobe photoshop and illustrator just for fun at like 14 15 and then you know being a broke high schooler you know as you 16 you start wanting to do stuff you start wanting to build your image and my parents just wasn't throwing me no bread <laughs> so I just trying to figure out how I could you know commodify my art and so it was t-shirts at the time I wasn't even thinking about you know fine art as a career you know I thought it was all that you have to go to school and you have to be in galleries and it's just way too much for a 16 year old to even think about so I took to um I was doing like fake graffiti like I never did no serious graffiti when I was in high school but you know just drawing on trains or markets and stuff like that but the clothes was really the pivot for me to like focus on something because I was trying to make money out of it and then when I went to DePaul and left in 2014 I was just looking for something to fill my time and I was over the clothing thing so I was like you know what I'm just gonna refine my skills as an artist you know it was just practicing some just rudimentary drawing like I was drawing cartoon characters and animals but I was starting to see the progression happen really fast so you know after that I did my first show, art show a year later and I was like yeah I'm doing this I can make money off this and do you feel like there was also a level of maybe on top of the financial appeal do you feel like you were kind of breaking into something more artistically gratifying at yeah, that point yeah, too yeah definitely definitely like man to be able to 
you know, come up with an idea and draw it and put a price on it and get that price. You know, just that shit felt amazing. Like, you know, I could, if that was the only little money I would have made the whole month, you know, it would have been better than every dollar I got from City Winery. You know what I mean? Because it's just like, mm. this is something that I really need to do. It's like therapeutic as well. And also, of course, there's the, the fact that, you know, you make the art, you sell the art, you get all of the profit exactly. from the art. Exactly. Whereas, you know, if you want to do the sort of structural analysis of a job like City Winery, you're not getting, you're not really doing the work of creating City Winery. You're just, you know. Exactly. Just a, a bolt, a gear in the giant engine that is easily replacing. I never liked that shit. You know, especially, you know, mm-hmm. when my, and I think my attention to detail or pattern thinking extends outside of the realm of art and things like that. So even when we were working there, it's like, I, y'all are doing shit wrong, especially on these events. Okay, I'm nineteen twenty, <laughs> but I know what I'm talking about. Listen to me, you know, people patronize you and again, I'm not gonna jump through hoops to make twenty dollars an hour when I can sit and draw, you know, at for the same hour and make a hundred. Like it just doesn't make sense to me at that point. And that's when I decided to like really step away from City Winery. Ironically, when I was selling art there, I was like, Yeah, I'm not clocking in here no more because y'all are letting me Yeah, exactly yeah, yeah, I guess you were gone. In twenty eighteen was that twenty eighteen? Yes. At the end of 2017, beginning of 2018, I started selling art at a city winery. And I was making like five, 600 a night. You know what I'm saying? Every other, mm-hmm. every week. So I'm like, and, and I will work, you know, all day, all week as a cedar to make $150. Or, you know, slave away 10 hours on a Saturday for $150 before taxes. So it was over with after that. From working on the other side of, of City Winery, you know, doing the sort of box office stuff and selling merchandise for artists there, uh, I'm pretty aware of how much of a cut they would take from, you know, say like a musician were to come through. This right. is not unique to City Winery. This is pretty common with most music venues. Right. They take a cut of the merchandise. Were they also taking a cut of the artwork that you were no, selling? No, it was all me. <laughs> they just let me rock and roll. I was like, thank well you. Well done. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, who was it? Um... <laughs> Laura Fashoda, I got to give her some props because she just was like, all right, go ahead, do it, dude. I was like, man, I was willing to break it in 20, 10, 20%, but I wasn't going to bring it up if they didn't and never said nothing. So I got to give her her props for that for sure. I remember that was an idea that you had kind of kicking around for a while because there were some shows where people would like be painting live and right. stuff like that, you know. I'm interested, though, going back to I want to sort of scroll back and take the slower path to bring us back up to where we are now. How do you think getting into the fashion design and selling T-shirts and like that, all, how did that influence your approach to making, quote unquote, fine art, yeah. or, you know, sellable art items? So for me, um, when I was doing the clothing line, it was really messages of social activism. So it wasn't necessarily about me as a creator, more so than I'm trying to connect with an audience by, you know, talking about things that I see people talking about. That's where the name of the brand was Lead the Revolution, and that's where a lot of the ideas came from. Um, so for me, it let me know that when I'm looking to, to, to sell things, you know, I have to, it's not always about me, even though I'm very much so a selfish creator when it comes to my fine art. But, you know, there are moments, like if I know I have to make some money, you know, I can pivot what I'm focused on to something external to me that may mean something to other people so much so that they want to pick that out and buy the same way, you know, a person might walk into a mall, there are thousands of brands. What brings you to that one particular brand that you decided to put in your body? If on Instagram, there are hundreds of thousands of artists, 
what makes you want to buy a Davy Friday piece? So I, I just kept that caveat in the back of my mind, like, you know, if we're going to engage in capitalism behind this shit, you know, it can't just be, you know, I'm painting what I want and I, I'm just going to be this free, you know what I'm saying, esoteric artist that the world is just flying at my genius. If I'm not there yet or if I never get there, how can I still have a meaningful connection with my audience? And it's just about thinking outside of myself. I think the clothing really put me on it at. Right. It's also interesting that you're not just talking about like pandering to an audience, but rather like addressing ideas that you think are good for that audience. Right, on right. Because when I, I did do that for a while with art, like at the beginning of 2018, when I started selling work, I'm starting to think like, now I'm getting money hungry. Okay, how can I make as much money? And the art wasn't fulfilling. You know what I mean? Like it didn't feel fun. You know what I'm saying? And art was always like, I'm doing this and I just so happened to be getting paid from it when I started focusing, okay, what's going to sell as opposed to, you know, what are people going to vibe with? You know, fuck the, the dollar amount. You know, I can dictate that. I can, it could be as cheap as the money I spent on the pieces to break even or exponential profits. Once I start focused on, you know what I'm saying, the exchange and more so just the connection, I think that's where, you know, my art has been following these past two years and it's the best work I've ever made. And so during that period of time that you said you were dissatisfied with the art that you were making, what was the sort of subjects that you were approaching? Um, I was I was also, you know, having some personal problems with people socially, um, people close to me socially, you know, falling out with um, friends and women when I was dating and stuff like that. So I was trying to create that message, but I was experimenting with expressionism because I, I was feeling like it was a, a quick gimmick to, you know, I can create fast art that, you know, I can, I, I can talk so I can, you know what I'm saying? Sell an agenda. But th that was very clearly the motive. It's like, okay, I'm trying to mask this deep, you know what I'm saying? Internal struggle with, what I really want is to make this exchange happen for some money. And mm -hmm. it was just me being self-serving and selfish at the same time. And the work just wasn't, and it was subpar because I wasn't giving too much thought into it. I'm just trying to, like, yeah, if I say that these angry strokes represent the way I feel and blah, 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 I can make some quick money on it because it's quick. But, you know, it looked like an hour piece or a 45 minute piece or a two hour piece as opposed to when I sit down and let a, you know, let a piece marinate, you know, let an idea marinate, you know, now I, I work on like no bullshit, 20 pieces at a time. So I could work on something and leave it alone for two or three weeks and get inspired all over again to keep working on it and pivot. And that's, that's birthing way better work. Yeah. I feel like that's, that kind of gets to the crux of something that I find really interesting about this sort of modern, and I use the word artist here kind of generally, not just like visual artists, but also musicians and writers, et cetera, is sort of these, these dual impulses between trying to pump out as much material as possible right. to sort of stay on the wave of people's attention because there's so much noise out there. And the other impulse to actually take the time to refine your techniques and clarify your ideas. And that I feel like is the, the biggest struggle. Absolutely. Because there's financial incentives for the first, but artistic incentives for the latter. Exactly. So what do you and that's, do, you know? And that's why it's like, I get so frustrated just living in a, in a society we live in. Because it's like, 
no matter what, that bill going to be due regardless. So it don't matter if you in an artistic rut or if you just not feeling it. Like you better figure out it, <laughs> figure out how to get it. And I, and I hate that because it makes me, it makes, it turns the, the art into work. And even though I use this as a, you know, as a source of income, it's not necessarily work for me and I don't want it to be work. But I understand right, why, you right. know, somebody takes three years to make an album now. You know, as a fan, I'm being selfish. Like, you just dropped. I need another one a year later. But if you really want that, you got to let that person work. Right. Because there's also the the danger of releasing too much subpar material. Exactly. You know, sort of like wa- washing out your positive associations. Like, if a band that I like releases like three albums a year and there's maybe one good album of material right. in there that's going to color your perception of how good any of it is you absolutely know? absolutely and i was just remember scrolling through my instagram at the time like bro this shit whack like objectively if it wasn't me and i picked up my phone and i looked at this artist page i'm not i'm not gonna follow him i'm damn near might unfollow him if i'm already am so <laughs> I, just, I just had to like just take a break and so you know at the at like the the culmination of all of the social turmoil and also me pivoting in and getting to school, I had just stopped making work for like four months and just studied architecture. You know what I mean? Like I'm just going to be broke. And I was broke. <laughs> I was really broke <laughs> up until like shit, the middle of last March, but from October, from August of 2018 to March of 2019, I was just, trying to get my mind back right you know what i mean and i'm glad i did that shit because i'm still working on ideas that started in that first you know what i'm saying couple months of architecture you know what i'm saying they're still growing with me which means that i needed to stop you know what i'm saying because now i have work that i've been working on ideas i've been teasing for two years now as opposed to trying to you know do it in a couple hours right it's almost like at a certain point, you have to have respect, not just for yourself, but for the art that you're making. You know, people exactly. make a lot of these metaphors about like, they're, oh, like this, this song, their songs are like their children. You want to like, right, right, right. provide the best, <laughs> you know, school for your kids, the best like healthcare and all that sort of stuff to make sure that it comes out the best it can be. And I think it's a similar thing with art where you don't want to rush something and disrespect the idea. You want to give the idea as much room to grow as it can absolutely man you hit it right on the head like and I, i've been making so many sacrifices so i can just stay in the ecosystem of working like i had a pretty decent internship with the cta earlier this year uh and i mean i, I should have just stuck through it because i could have got unemployment <laughs> but i had quit after like four months because i was just like look this little money i'm making um, here, I can undoubtedly make an art and it's eating up all my free time. And even if I go through periods of where I'm not feeling it, I still need to be able at any moment, pick up a pencil and get to it. If I'm working these, you know, menial jobs, just trying to get a check and I ain't going to call that job menial. It was, it was a decent internship for architecture, but it was n- nowhere near aligned to what I want to do. And I'm just always some like, you know, I got the rest of my life to, to be complacent, you know, while I'm young and energetic, I'm trying to get to it. So, you know, and sacrificing relationships, sacrificing friendships, sacrificing financial security so I can really just be at peace of mind knowing that, you know, I have the, the liberty and the freedom to start creating. So during that period of time where you were removing yourself from the constant practice of releasing things, um, 
And I, I apologize if I use like a lot of music terminology. No, you fine. I, 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 I know that's your lyrics. brain, man. I know that's your brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like it's just like everyone's got their own lingo for how they talk about all this stuff. So it's just how it's going to come out. But so during that period of time, the sort of sabbatical where you were coming up with a lot of ideas, but not executing them or publishing them necessarily were a lot of those ideas coming from what you were studying in architecture at the time or was there any sort of like feedback loop there so two things two really important things happened to me um at architecture school a it it, it, it desensitized me to criticism and i never knew how sensitive i was until i had to stand up in front of a group of people and just allow them to tell whatever i did to shreds because it made me a better worker and it made me way more honest with myself too and then also i you know i'm always i've always been socially attuned but i've you know felt powerless through my early 20s like you know i know all of this shit i have i've been knowing this since i was 12 13 14 i've been very you know hip to you know just how america plays out and i really don't know how i could 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 do anything about it and architecture has shown me um how important this field of architecture is and how that has really been the stage for everything that we've seen happen in this country since the very first moment people got here up until now everything every atrocity and every triumph have been facilitated in the architectural space to some degree and it lets, so that lets me know that there's something actionable. Like one thing that I started thinking about was I want to start this architecture movement for black Americans specifically called black brutalism. There are not many, um, there, there is no, you know, architectural movement uh, that black people have meaningfully contributed to uh, outside of being the physical builders, you know, but we have, you know, uh, a style of music, you know, several styles of music. We got styles of fashion, so on and so forth, but we haven't been, been able to hit that architecture front and by design. And I call it, the one I want to start is black brutalism. It's a play on a role blurred brutalism because brutalism as an architectural practice already is a thing. It was used, it's like these monolithic dystopian things, um, buildings that were primarily used for social housing in Europe. And Mm -hmm. The word brutalism playing on the word brutality, we know that black America brutalizes black bodies. And so once I came up with that idea just to have an architecture movement, that was just like the surface level thing two years ago. Now, as I'm starting to, you know, tease out what I'm thinking about it, I think that black brutalism can be a historical perspective on American history told specifically through architecture. Um, America abused, has abused black bodies on three fronts throughout history, plantations, prisons, and projects. Those three places have been specifically crafted. These are architectural places that have been specifically crafted to control and abuse, you know, black bodies. And now that abuse has extended to, you know, many people, you know what I'm saying? Even white people are enslaved by law, you know what I'm saying? Legally are legal slaves in American prisons, you know, and projects where we're from the well, what people are starting to understand, you know, during Jim Crow and right after Jim Crow through the civil rights, these inadequate project housing complexes that forced people into these small quarters without resources for generations and no type of economic mobility. And then you super uh, impose drugs and guns with the war on drugs and the CIA selling drugs, literally selling drugs to fund, you know, what I'm saying dirty wars outside where seeing these architectural spaces be designed to um, cause harm and 
in order to counteract all of that, I really think that the liberation of black people in this country can only come through uh, architectural space, being able to, you know, control their own neighborhoods, their own blocks, their own portions of the city, meaningfully, though, you know what I'm saying? Building income through real estate and things like that. So that's, it's kind of a long tangent, but, you know, these are the things that I'm starting to see that what I learned in architecture okay, this is something that is actionable. You know what I mean? I started architecture style. I define the aesthetics. You know what I mean? I figure out how I can build one or two myself. And then we start that, um, just start that wave of people following up. If they pick up on it, they pick up on it. If it spawns something else, it spawns something else. But it feels actionable. Like I can use my art and my design to have profound implications on people. You know what I mean? I'm talking real generational impacts. Yeah, there's a lot that you just brought up there that I want to kind of pick apart at because not in a negative way, but just to build on it, you know. Yeah, most definitely. Um, it reminds me of, there's this uh, there's this band Stereo Lab. They're like a, you know, French socialist kind of rock band. And one of their songs, it's like only two lines of lyric. It's like, if, if it can be built, then it can be destroyed. Uh, right. you know, nothing doesn't come from something. It's like the idea is that if you can create a structure, then it is just as possible for a different structure to replace it Absolutely. or to destroy the old structure in some way. So, and, so acknowledging that there is a thing that has been built right. allows you to see how to build something else. In some exactly. A hundred percent. Like I hate when people say, oh, I hate history. Oh, I don't pay attention to history. I'm like, it's the blueprint. Like things that we're talking about, like I'm, I, I get really frustrated with, um, you know, a lot of a lot of the social activism that happens on social media today, even, you know, from everybody, you know, black people included, because, you know, we had some of the greatest black minds ever in the 70s who are in the thick of racism, who are in the thick of segregation, you know, in the 70s and 60s that literally laid out the entire plan. You want to. Address racial inequality in this country. Do this. That was 50, 60 years ago, and people are still online screaming and hollering and feeling powerless because they don't know what to do. And it's because you literally do not read history. We've seen so many actionable things. We've seen mistakes that people have made before, and we're doing the same thing. Like the parallel between Hitler and, and Donald Trump is so staunch and so crazy. It's like, how will we not? seeing the you know what i'm saying like because there isn't a fundamental understanding outside of like the big names like you know when people hear you know things like adolf hiller they say okay we know that the holocaust happened he did this a lot and that's about it you know what i mean no people don't know like the nuance how did hitler come to power you know what i'm saying why did so many right. people follow right. him what kind of tools did he use and once you understand those nuances of history you know how to recognize them when it pops back up and you know how to deal with it or conversely if you can see everything that they've built and like you said all of the structures that they built up you know exactly where to weaken it when you go to demolish a right. building you don't right. just throw grenades everywhere and call it a day you strategically place these charges to bring this whole thing down but you know where to place them by studying the building right it's pattern recognition again and i think people expect replication rather than like rhyming in history you know right 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 this is why people can't see like white supremacy and fascism (laughs) in america (laughs) because they expect it to be like brown shirts and you know as you said like you know like 1488 shit like all that sort of right and like not to say that people aren't using those same 
ideas and iconography, but like American fascism is going to look American. You know what I mean? It's not going to look German. It's not going to look German. Exactly. Exactly. People do not understand that you are literally Nazis, just with a different name. And that's a, that's a wonderful way to put it. I never even thought of it like that. Yeah, people looking for repetition as opposed to rhyming. Yeah, because it's not going to be one-to-one. But that shit's going to be so damn comparable. You, If you just know what to look for, you're not going to overlook that. And I think that we really need to um, just push that amongst people in general. Like, it's a lot of rah, 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 but none of the ugly work. Like, people get the viral tweets off when they're saying something really stupid. You know what I mean? Like, if you were to put that same thing in Google, you could see all of these things. But, you know, people are getting excited off of 50,000 retweets and things like that, that all of this stays surface level. And, you know, and again, I, I fail victim to that. Like, I, I, I personally don't like going to protests and marches anymore. I've been doing that every summer since I was, like, 19 years old every summer we got to go march because somebody didn't got killed by the police how many times are we going to do this as opposed to figuring out uh you know institutional changes like in, in chicago right now everybody's so upset with Lori lightfoot me included and i'm also to blame because we had record low voter turnouts in 2019 like, I'm talking about Chicago yeah. had the historically lowest voter turnout in 2019, and that's how this cop got elected. That's on my shoulders, you know what I'm saying? But, again, it's because we, we, do, the, we, do, the, we do the cute shit. We do the Instagramable shit. We do the things that we can get pat on the back and make ourselves feel good, but that ugly shit, like, okay, who the fuck should we vote for to make sure they can actually make these changes? Going to these, listening to these people talk, reading their literature, following their history. That's that ugly shit that doesn't get, you know what I mean, a lot of just a lot of a glamour and I'm tr- I'm starting to get towards that and using architecture and art as a vehicle. Well, I think it's actually really important to bring up the social media because social media is an architecture in some way. Like these are sites that are not, they are not blank canvases. They are built spaces that are designed to make you act a certain way. So of course it's going to fit like, push you to seek validation and attention because that's the, that's the way that the numbers go up is if more right. people are engaging but that doesn't necessarily translate to anything changing in the real world that's just right. making the numbers go up you know man i've been instagrammable since 2012 you know what i'm saying taking pictures of you know catch phrases you know before like the people made the goofy shirts that you just screen print masks we was doing that when we was in high school you know what i'm saying making buttons and shit like that propaganda pieces but you know i can't blame those 16 17 8 year 18 year olds when i get in there but you know we 25 now so when i see my friends just posting these quirky memes and shit like that i'm like what are you really doing or just not even to say action should fall on everybody's shoulders but what are you are you at least learning something or is it just the 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 pretty thing but to your point about you know these websites being spaces of architecture we really one of my professors one of the most influential people to me for architecture's name is joseph ausschuler he runs this uh firm called could be architecture but he's also a professor at iit in another school in chicago and we just did this class called broadcasting architecture um which was a pivot from the original summer class because of covid but it was all about using you know the architectural space that instagram has provided for us to broadcast a message you know what I'm saying? So I did my first like teaser for black brutalism where I was talking about the Monticello plantation and presidencies. You know what I mean? Like 
I don't think people know that 13 of the first 17 presidents had slaves. 80% of the people right, who right. wrote the you know, uh, the Constitution had slaves. Should we still be using this shit 400, later, 400 years later? Probably not. You know what I mean? But people thinking, you know what I'm saying, restructuring a country is like daunting, impossible tasks when that is literally what we did here. <laughs> it's been done once. Right. <laughs> yeah, like this is the thing. It's like our, the, you know, the 4th of July just happened. And, right. you know, I, I, you could probably draw, to your, to your very point, like th- this is a revolution that was done by slaveholders. You know? Right. It was not a revolution of the people. It was right. a bougie revolution. <laughs> but that still shows that, like, it is in the uh, the veins of this country to you know what I mean? toss shit over the side of the boat if we're pissed off. You right. Know? Like, you know? before the Constitution, we had the stupid-ass Articles of the Confederation. They was like, hey, you mm-hmm. know what? This shit don't make sense. Let's, let's try again. You know what I mean? I think I truly believe this, and I saw. Um, I can't remember the, the the young woman's name. She's the uh, the congresswoman from Minnesota. Uh, I think her name's like Omar something. Oh uh, yeah, Ilan Omar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She um we had a talk today. You know, just talking about you know, basically tearing America down and rebuilding it uh, was in her speech. You know, people were getting on her like, uh, if you don't want to do, if you don't want to be in this country, you can leave. Blah blah blah. But I'm like, dude, sh- that is the most American shit ever that is literally the foundation of america is tearing down stupid shit and rebuilding and i firmly firmly believe that we need a complete restructure of our governance because i was watching i'm watching this show on um netflix called empire games and then there was another one uh, uh, called roman empire and motherfuckers love julius caesar and the roman republic or the roman democracy is exactly what we're doing now, damn near. Almost to a T, right? And those people were so insidious and abusing power and killing each other off. And why are we emulating this system? Because that's exactly what we're doing now. But we're not always, we still kill people for shit, but we're not always physically assassinating people. We're assassinating people's character. We're doing backhand deals and all of this treachery because that is like the the fabric of this system. Like, there needs to be a complete like they need to spend four years the next presidency just rewriting the constitution you know what i mean like mm-hmm. a lot of this shit just doesn't hold up no more yeah I, and i think that that's something that it's it's terrifying for a lot of people because people assume that things have been around forever but they really haven't right. you know right like the idea that this country is somehow like carved in stone i've been thinking a lot about mount rushmore lately because right. uh, actually uh, <laughs> Last summer I went on tour and we went through South Dakota. We weren't playing a show that day. So we actually went and visited Mount Rushmore. It fucking sucks. It's such a, like, it's so like for context, it was carved around the same time that like Picasso was making Guernica, you know? know? Really? Yeah. So it's like almost a hundred years old. But when you look at it, it is so small and like pathetic looking like they have to create all of this space around it like all of these like columns and you know symmetrical trees to guide your eyes to look at it because actually just looking at it you're like some like shit (laughs) right 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 i thought i thought mount rushmore was way older and i thought it was huge too like every picture Mm -hmm. i've ever seen has always been like this close-up crop you know what i'm saying with these big heads but again like to to for for Americans to have that kind of like bravado to carve these faux fucking horrible people into the side of the wall, Abraham Lincoln included. Like, yeah, 
And if, if America's going to truly ever progress, if we're ever going to get to where we need to be, we're going to get slave traders off of our currency and we're going to tear down Mount Rushmore. But those things have to be like non-negotiables. <laughs> right. Because you have to think like not only is it, you know, a bunch of basically the, the uh, actors of white supremacy carved onto a mountain that was sacred land for the indigenous people of this country. Like, like what a fucking on, insult, you know? <laughs> like, come on, G. That shit is ridiculous. And I think, like, actually, this kind of goes back to your point about, like, learning to take criticism in right. some way. Like, right. that's sort of the biggest problem, I feel like, is people are just not... They they have this, like, sheen of American exceptionalism that they just refuse Absolutely. to pull down and actually, like, see things for as they are. You can't tell Americans shit. I'm talking about none of them. Like, black Americans included. You can't tell a motherfucker they're doing anything wrong at all in America. And IIT is, like, the most diverse school in Chicago. This is the first time I've, it, like, school hasn't really been, like, American for me. Like, you know, it's black kids, white kids, uh, Latinx kids, and then, you know, everybody else. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. uh, traditionally. But now I'm going to school with, you know, like, hundreds of people from all over Asia, you know what I'm saying? And even that diaspora is huge. You feel me? People from the motherland, you know what I'm saying? People from Europe, Europe, you know what I mean? People coming from South America, and it's a lot. People coming from the Middle East, it's a lot of different people. And we, we, I just see how, you know, other cultures just, A, deal with people of other cultures, and, you know, just like their temperaments and things like that. And America is like the most cocky nationality on the planet and it, and it and it gets really insidious the further right you go but even you know people on the left liberal people are extremely like have this moral high ground to where everything that my vision of america is right and people have to play these politics the way i see fit and it's like man the whole point of a democracy and the whole point of diversity is to have uh, a ton of different ideas now okay we can get we can all get behind the let's stop violently oppressing people but you know i don't i don't i don't ever like trying to step on other people's ideas thinking that my ideas are the most superseding you feel me like four plus five is mm -hmm. nine but so is three plus six we can get to the same thing but we got to make sure our visions align you know what i'm saying i think that's the only problem with the right and left because i've been trying to like again like being receptive to criticism now has also allowed me to objectively listen to other people's ideologies, right? Like, I, okay, even though I, I fundamentally don't agree with the fuck you're saying on service level, I can at the very least listen to what you're saying. Like, I was upset with Netflix because they had an alt-right documentary, and I thought it was going to be from the perspective of somebody in the alt-right. You feel me? But it was like a we-hate-the-alt-right kind of documentary, so it was of course, biased, but you know, I just I, I'm very curious as to why people think the way that they think. And again, it's that pattern recognition because once you figure out what the things are, the pillars are. If it doesn't make sense, you can get it out the way. But if it does, maybe that can be something that can bring people closer together. Like, okay, what do you like? What is the disconnect on? You know what I mean? And most things, I was right. watching this other documentary. Right. I don't mean to keep rambling. I was watching this other documentary, but they were talking about how most Americans agree on majority of shit. You know what I'm saying? It's like those real polar things that have been to the forefront of the American ideology, which is splitting people so far on the left and right. But like 60% of Americans agree on majority of the same shit. Right. I mean, this is, again, this is not something that is just happening absent of context. Like if you look at history, there are people that 
deliberately find issues right. to split people right. apart <laughs> to gain power. Right. You know, this is the whole Newt Gingrich thing. You know, you like find like gun rights and abortion and use that to split a certain segment of people off so you can then sell them on all the other right. stuff that you actually want to do. Right. You know, you create the culture war to create a base for support for a certain ideology. And you supersede American egotism with American stupidity, because we all like getting dumber as generations go on. It's like, yeah, it's so easy to divide people. Like, you know, we arguing over the, like, and one thing I'm noticing about the right too, and I, I, and I also, again, like me leaning left, I wonder like what stupid shit that I allow myself to just keep buying into. But you know, like the stupidity I see on the right when it goes like, okay, there's like a for real uproar about these masks, right? Oh, you can't tell me what to do, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. But you okay with telling motherfuckers that they can't have reproductive rights. You know what I'm saying? Like you can control somebody's body that way, but we can't control your mouth and mask. Like the co- like, do you not see that cognitive dissonance? You know what I mean? Like it's like one to one. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you even see people chanting like my body, my rights, like at these like, you know, anti-coronavirus <laughs> protests, which is just like, I, like, I don't, to your point, like I try to not openly shit on people that right. are out there doing this because they're doing it out of some degree. Like I also don't want to give them too much sympathy, right, either, right. but it's like but you know, there's something else going on here. You know, right. it's like, what are you, what are these people actually angry about? You know what I mean? What are, what's like stoking that fire is the, the question that I think we have to get at. And I think, and I honestly think that it's the same with the left. Like we all have a fundamental distrust of our government. We distrust them on mm. different shit. <laughs> but nobody trusts them. Like when I was watching um like this Florida uh I don't even know what the hearing was for, where it was, what level of government it was, but you know some Floridians were expressing their anger with you know, having the way the base issue was a mask, but the things that they were saying was like this whole deep state thing. And, you know, you're government spies and government, which is just indicative of distrust of the government. Like, of course, these people are, the, I'm going to call them morons because the shit that they were saying was you clearly dumb, but it's like, okay, <laughs> but you can, well, I think we all know, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to be the smartest cookie in a jar to know that our government be on some shady shit. You know what I mean? So now they don't, I don't trust you wearing these masks because is, am I killing myself? Is you know, so much misinformation is spread on social media and people hop on what the first thing that they see. And we know that, you know, companies literally feed ad data to get you to think a certain way, which is how Donald Trump got elected with this persuadables thing. You know what I mean? So they're, they're, feeding you content to form an opinion in your mind. You know what I'm saying? But now with the internet, it's so many conflicting things that it just creates a, a state of chaos for people who don't have good discernment. So if we can all at the very least agree that we all don't like our government, we all distrust what they're doing, then we should start to restructure it. We can get behind, okay, where do yes. we go from here? You know what I'm saying? Yes, yes, exactly. That's why like the people that I feel the I, the people that I don't understand the most are people who are just fine with the status quo. Right. Like that just makes zero, zero sense to me. I would like to, to briefly change lanes because I actually want to talk about uh, a positive use right. of social media, <laughs> which is that over the last you know few months, you've been raffling off prints of your work. Uh, the first example I saw was you raising money to buy groceries for people you know, in the south side of Chicago. Uh, you've also continued to do it for uh, Yemeni humanitarian support. 
Uh, how did you decide to start doing that? And what have you learned from the process of doing it? Uh, I, again, like not allowing myself to feel like I'm hopeless, you know what I'm saying? Or I can't do anything. Like understanding that I'm a, you know, a piece of a very larger game, you know what I mean? So like, what, what game can I play? So I just wanted, so it really started with me just asking like, yo, who is organizing something? Like, let's do something, you know what I mean? And I really didn't think, I didn't think it was going to be much. Um, and then one of my homegirls is a great um, organizer. Her name's Tynetta uh, Muhammad. And so then she was like, okay, well, we should do this. In order to do this, we're going to need this. Okay, say less. The, the, at the very least, I could ask people. And so once I saw how people were like really, you know, into it, they were just donating off rip for the first uh, run, you know, after the uh, riots and stuff, when we were trying to make sure people stayed fed. Uh, people were just donating off the strength. So I wanted to for the second uh, time around, I want to like incentivize people like, okay, you know, you deserve something for, you know, your generosity, whether it's a couple dollars, you know, you doing your part on any level, you know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. you know, the, again, the only thing I know to, to, to reward people with is what I can do naturally. It's just art. So, you know, yeah, I mean, I think, and, and so that just showed me that, you know, I have some type of power or, you know what I'm saying, to do something. And I, and at the very least I can generate some income to, to help people. So I, I, I think the least that I could do, if I have to engage in capitalism and I know that the way capitalism plays out usually is about people hoarding wealth and, 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 and fucking people over so they can get their money. Well, I don't have to do that. I don't have to make a product or a good or a service. You know, all I need is a piece of paper and a pencil and I can make some money out of it. I can commit to giving some of those proceeds to somebody else because I'm making money basically out of thin air. You know what I mean? Right. Well, the, I guess the, the left version of it is that your labor is the thing that is making the money out of the right, air. Right. You know? You've got <laughs> right. the materials and you doing the work is what creates the value that right. you can then, yeah. I think, true. really nobly, instead of using that just to, you know, hoard the profits, use that to, you know, one, raise awareness of certain causes, but also directly help the people that are in your community. Right. And I think that's that's like the the highest ideal of art is to in some ways uplift the people around you and like improve the world. That's a know? fact. And, I, and if I believe that to be true, you know, I gotta, I gotta stand by that word. Like, cause I had, and the reason what made me wanted to do the fundraiser for uh, your many people was I had just made, you know, a bunch of money on the stock market. Um, and then I had, you know, sold a couple pieces for a decent amount. And of course I splurged a little bit, you know, I spent, you know, like 400 on some clothes or something. And then I saw an ad, you know, at these starving kids and it was like yeah if you can donate fifty dollars you'll feed a family for six weeks so i'm like gee i could have just let eight people eat for six or eight families eat for six Mm -hmm. weeks and i bought some sneakers that i can't even wear because we on quarantine (laughs) you know what i'm saying so i'm like i'm like i can't i can't like that like those like again when you know better you do better ignorance is always bliss when you don't think like that okay it's easy to just continue to do the same shit you're doing but you know if i like, i can't that don't sit right with my spirit if i can have that conscious thought and then just put it in the back of my mind i'm starting to become a morally corrupt person and i don't want to do that you know what i'm saying so i had to right. I had to figure out to do something i also feel like that's a there's two ways that that can go you can either just ignore the thought push it away continue living your life enjoy your shoes right. whatever or you can get you know i think and this kind of goes into what's going on with a lot of the uh, what's going on on the right wing is you can get resentful. Right, right. You, know, you can say, well, then I already spent the money. Fuck you for making me want to feel bad for it. Right. You know? And I think that's something that like 
I've noticed a lot lately that I've really appreciated is people kind of getting past the feeling of shame and resentment right. and just finding a way to do better, you know, finding a way to like the whole black squares thing on Instagram, right. you yeah. know, like a lot of people made a mistake and instead of beating themselves up or getting defensive about it, just figured out ways to push it forward, you know, continue exactly. to share information in another way and adjust, you know? Yeah. And to that point, like, I really think that we, should stop using and viewing the word ignorant as an insult. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, it really just means absence of knowledge. You know what I mean? I can't fault somebody for not knowing something. But once I break it down to you or introduce this information to you, you are no longer uh, ignorant by default. You are ignorant by choice now. And I feel like we just need new verbiage for that specifically. So, you know, people just understand like nobody will ever know everything nobody's ever going to be you know the perfect citizen but you know if we can just do that own up to when we fuck up and just do better the best we can like that alone like that little bit is will save so many arguments like i got into one of my friends in high school on twitter the day the um the young girl toyin um from tallahassee was uh killed at the protest um you know black women were really upset on twitter behind that and Somebody made a post, a black man made a post saying, um, you know, black men, we need to stop calling women, uh, black women females. When they refer to us, they call us, you know, men, blah, blah, blah. Like, let's just stop doing that. And so one of my homies from high school quote tweeted it and said something stupid. And I was just like, bro, today's not the day. Like, it's just insulting when, you know, you call a woman a female. Just just stop, bro. Like, and then, you know, you go into this whole thing when he was like. I think it's disrespectful when women call me uh, boy and nigga, and so I always check them. And I was like, I said this specifically. I said, nigga, I know you don't care about that. And he said, no, I do. I really think it's very disrespectful, you know, and I, I can't, I've checked plenty of women behind it. I'm like, you know how I know you don't mean that shit? Because I literally just called you a nigga and you ain't saying a motherfucking word. And he was like, you using it in a different context. I'm like, no, the fuck I'm not. You know what I'm saying? Like, how? <laughs> he, but I'm like, you're just being misogynistic right now. I'm not calling you a misogynist, but your actions are misogynistic. You are saying that you are letting me as a man get away with something that you won't let a woman get away with. That is the definition of misogyny. So just check it and call him one. You know, we go back and forth. He's saying I'm insulting his intelligence and all type of shit. I'm like, bro, you don't have to get defensive. You know what I'm saying? I used to do the same shit. Like I, I went through my, I searched, I searched my Twitter handle. And the word female uh, and just saw these goofy ass messages from when I was in high school. I was like, oh, I see why women don't like that shit because men only say female when they're saying something bad about a woman. You know what I mean? Oh, females do this. Females do that. But it's just the point of it's okay to have made mistakes. It's so it doesn't mean that you're a bad person just because you do something that is unfavorable. But once you try to justify it, okay, now I'm looking at you like a bad person because you just don't want to do better. Right. You're more concerned with like protecting your ego than protecting the people that you're living with. I've been exactly. I've been waiting to use this for a long time. I can't wait to happen. I want to ask somebody who's close to me, like, what do you care more about? Your e protecting your ego or our friendship when they do some goofy shit like that. You know what I mean? Like, because it's like, what, what do you, what do you, cause, and once you can frame it like that, you like, okay, I guess it don't matter. You know what I mean? I'm like, so what do you care more about? Your, your relationship with women or you being able to call women what you you think that you want to be able to call them? You know what I'm saying? I'm like, 
it's it's, it's the same way. Like, I don't want nobody calling me colored. I have a fucking fit. If somebody called me colored, and I'm sure whoever, the person who said, oh, well, there's these reasons why I should be able to say this, or even the N-word. These reasons why I should be able to say it too, but at the end of the day, I don't fuck with it. So if you have respect for me as a human being, the least you can do is watch the syllables that come out your mouth. Like, that is, like, the bare fucking minimum. And it's just when people... People have to have the confidence to call people out on shit like that. And people just have to have the maturity to be like, say less. It's not that serious. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do want to talk about the actual stuff that's inside of your art. Word. Uh, because we're almost at an hour. And this is... I'm not saying, like, oh, God, we got to wrap it up. Because I'm having a great time having this conversation. Word. But I was looking through a lot of your more recent work and I was noticing like some recurring motifs Mm -hmm. and I just kind of be interested in picking your brain about why you're interested in these kind of things. Mm -hmm. So I'm seeing a a lot of human anatomy, you know, a lot of hearts, a lot of brains, a lot of brains kind of split in half, almost like anatomy textbook Mm -hmm. material. I was noticing a lot of eyes and facial features that are kind of distorted and separated from the context of a human face and then I was also noticing a more recent thing was that you were using the actual grid of Chicago mm-hmm. kind of as like the setting for a lot of these various uh, images. So what's what's motivating uh, those ideas? So I, I want people to start making the connection um, with, you know, the like different scales of bodies and how bodies don't necessarily just apply to physicality. Right. Like. The, the city of Chicago is a body. And I'm, I'm directly borrowing from this woman named Amanda Williams. She's a, a black architect uh, from Chicago, but she's also a fine artist. And she did this series where she superimposed maps of Chicago over maps of Iraq, you know, to play on that Chirac idea, right? Wow, holy shit. Word. Yeah. And so I really liked... You know, again, me being from Chicago and me spending so much time in Chicago, I've done every level of education in my life in Chicago, like the Chicago as a body, like imagine Chicago being a person has directly influenced me so much. And it's just to to speak about that connection with, with Chicago specifically, but I'm also going to start using other, you know, municipalities to use as that grid, but it's to get people to make the connection between the physical body and then the, you know, the metaphoric body that is, you know, uh, a city or a country or a planet, Mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? And like the different cascades do that. And also, um, you know, how architectural our body is, you know what I mean? Like the same way I can cut a section of a building, I can cut a section of our brain, I can cut a section of our heart. And we can start to think of, you know, the same way you do renovations on a building, you take care of a building, we, we have to do these things with our bodies, too. So we have to have, you know what I'm saying, some type of love and pay a particular attention to bodies. And I really I really like the, the um, you know, the, like the concept of, you know, like the thought behind a building. You know what I mean? Because, again, it's a design thing. And the architecture of my brain allows me to come up with these ideas. You know what I mean? And allows me to right. tell my body to execute on them. And then, you know, but with, it's, with the heart, it's more metaphoric. It's like, you know where's your heart driving you? You know what I'm saying? Like, what are you paying attention to? But just being conscious of that, being conscious of the things that you think and the things that you feel. And I think brains are, you know, symbolic of what you think. Hearts are symbolic of what you feel. And eyes are symbolic of what you pay attention to. Also, you know, they say eyes are the windows to the soul. 
architecture has physical windows. It's like those parallels as well. But, you know, just really thinking about the body as architectural space and, you know, its relationship to all of this, all of the things that influence it. You know what I mean? Like the city of Chicago and, uh, and the sun it gets just from its position on this planet <laughs> is directly responsible for how dark I get in the summertime. You know what I mean? Or uh, my proneness to getting sick in the winter because now it's negative fucking 10 outside. You know what I mean? But just right. understanding that or, you know, just the way I talk, the way I move, you know what I'm saying? The the effects of, you know, city smog and shit like that. Understanding that these cities and these worlds that we live in and occupy aren't like these fucking ethereal things that don't exist. Like they have real tangible impacts and can be tweaked the same way, you know, I can go in you know, get surgery on my shoulder to repair it. You know, I can, we can perform metaphoric surgery on cities and repair all of the problems. Well, one would certainly fucking hope so. You know, <laughs> like, that's... <laughs> no, facts, So I, I gotta ask, I gotta ask because you've got something behind you that it seems like you're working on at the moment mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that looks a bit different. Yeah. Than the other pieces of art that you've made public, and you don't have to be no like no spoilers if you don't want to give any spoilers. I'm but, an open book, bro. Uh, where do you see where do you see your art going in the future? What what are you working towards at the moment? So I am I am eventually going to transition into leaving you know visual art behind like two dimensional art behind as like means of survival and just allow it to be therapeutic. So like these pieces like this piece I'm working on now and the other piece that's similar to it is me. Um, revisiting that expressionist idea that I came up with in 2018, but I was being very cheap about. You probably remember these pieces with like the ink faces and then acrylic color, but it was all on paper. Like if you scroll, I might have deleted them all from my Instagram, honestly, (laughs) but you know, I had a bunch of them. Um, So it's revisiting that, but it's like, okay, like let's not try to be quick about it. Like these pieces cost like, like the one I, the first one I sold was 800, but I spent like, 120 on a paint you know what i'm saying and just took the time of okay so i don't have to like my art is very figural you know what i'm saying art doesn't have to be extremely figural and i'm usually hypercritical of contemporary art but you know since i've been studying architecture and art is so paralleled you know i've seen some very thought-provoking contemporary art that is really based on technique you know what i'm saying so how can i figure out how to get that into me and, you know, I'm just using impasto and trying to really emote with a piece as opposed to having somebody see an image and know exactly what I'm trying to get off. Am I skillful enough to capture the essence of an emotion, you know, using just color and brush strokes, you know what I'm saying? Or palette knife strokes as opposed to, you know, using the, the, the full breadth of my skill, you know what I'm saying? Like drawing these really precise one to one images, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I. I like that a lot because a lot of the art that I respond to is art that leaves space for you to imbue meaning into it. And I think that more expressionistic or abstract work can allow that. Not always, not all of the time, not necessarily, but it lends itself to that approach. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I want to close on one thing just because it's been kind of particularly important for me over the last month or so, you, you saw that I posted it on Instagram, the hat that you designed yeah, to yeah. prove you exist. Um, and I hadn't worn it a lot in New York, partially because it's got the like variant of the Chicago flag right. on the front. And, you know, 
I am more a bit more prone to grab for the Mets hat. <laughs> right. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> but you know, with everything that's been happening with this sort of uh, sudden burst of energy behind this movement for social change that we've like talked about, I think a fair amount, maybe a bit obtusely here, but hopefully directly. I, I just wanted to ask you what that, what those three words means to you prove you exist yeah so it, it, the, the the phrase itself comes from my brother you know Leron. um he came up with the idea of prove you exist and we mm -hmm. were thinking of something in vain of lead the revolution but we were older at the time you know we came up with lead the revolution when i was 16 and he was 15 so you know when we did this newest rendition it was like okay what what are we what message are we trying to get across and it's like yeah prove you exist can you put some type of physical implantation and it really and it's coming back to me it's fine from a conversation me and him had about you know people like imagine all the people that got lost to history you know what i'm saying like it's eight billion people on this planet how many people have died you know what i'm saying that we will never know their face we'll never know their name we'll never know their story you know what i'm saying and how can we make sure that doesn't happen to us like i don't want to be you know lost to historical records i don't want to just be bones found in the ground one day like how can you know I can prove that I was here. <laughs> and, you know, the, and the hat was like the first way of getting at that. Like, okay, we can leave a hat behind. You know, somebody find this hat, maybe they'll, <laughs> it'll come back to them. But it, it's the same with like art. You know what I mean? Like, okay, I can take these ideas in my mind and make this physical manifestation. And hopefully it, 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 it lasts the test. But it's just about, you know, understanding that we have the power to be impactful like that. Not to say that that's necessarily the goal or that what we should be striving for, but just having that understanding that, you know, in my time here, I can have a profound impact on how many people go about their lives, you know what I'm saying, for better or for worse. And if you can be attuned to that and know that the actions that you have, you know, have that type of implication, it allows you, I feel like, to make better choices or to just be more thoughtful in your choices. Because not to say that what you're going to do is going to have a um, positive impact on people, but, you know, just knowing that what you do does. So proving you exist is mm -hmm. making sure that you're tailored to that. That's awesome. I love that. I love that so much. <laughs> that's what I try to do with my music too. You know, it's like the acknowledgement that I exist in the world, but also to imbue that same sense of uh, self-awareness or self-actualization in the people that are hearing it. You know, like if you can, I, what I like about wearing the hat is it's, it's a bit right. like provocative. It's a bit cocky, you know, like someone, I remember one time in Chicago, I was wearing it and a guy like came up to me and just like came right up into my face and said, I exist. <laughs> you know, and I, I love that. Cause right. it's like, fuck, fuck yeah, you do, you know, you do exist. <laughs> That's awesome for sure. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and I, I this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, I think I, I gotta probably you. wrap it up because um, it's getting a bit late here. I don't want to annoy my neighbors too much. But again, <laughs> Andy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been awesome. Appreciate you, bro. Thank you again for listening, and thank you to Davey for joining me. You can find Davy's work on Instagram at Davy Friday and at Friday Dealings. You can find more episodes of the podcast on the iTunes podcast app or at soundcloud.com slash lamniforms sounds. And you can follow me on Twitter at lamniforms underscore or on Instagram at Ian K. Corey. 
more episodes soon. Until next time.